0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. You can use the Blue Pew Bible there and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 18 and read through chapter 3, verse 6. Mark chapter 2 beginning in verse 18, and this is the very word of God. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. May God at his blessing The reading of his word, would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we have just read, even of the plots and schemes of man to seek to destroy the Savior, Jesus Christ, Holy Father, we thank you that nevertheless you raised up Jesus from the dead, even your own dear Son, And that he was vindicated, even though he had been crucified and put in the tomb, he was vindicated on the third day by his resurrection. A resurrection witnessed by so many. And we thank you that all the plots and plans and schemes of man fail. That you win. You always win. And even if we see temporarily that it appears that The wicked prosper. We know their end because you have declared that their end will come to pass. There is a judgment to come. We thank you that we do not fear that judgment to come if we believe in Jesus Christ. Because Christ has bore that judgment at the cross for all those who believe in him. We thank you for that great protection. That great liberation that we have in him. But O Lord we ask for mercy in the midst of judgment on this land lord we are so troubled by what is going on even in our province in our city we see that the wicked prosper and we ask lord that you would grant mercy we pray that you would protect children in this city we pray for even all those different people in in various levels of government and bureaucracies and administration Anyone who is engaged in leading any kind of institution today, we pray, Lord, that you would grant them an awakening, a return to your word, a return to your gospel, and that they would forsake all of the wickedness that is being presented. We do pray, Lord, that there would be we pray that there would be a thwarting of the efforts of some in our government to want to impose. Wickedness that would confuse men and women. Wickedness that would impose sexual immorality upon children. Lord, we pray that you would grant mercy even upon our city in that regard. But Lord, many of us, as we think about these things, we're so troubled by what we see. We can live in unbelief. We don't believe that you are able to turn this around. Even in this city, even in this province, in this land. Forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, we see people who are hurting, who are struggling. Lord, we have family members who are weak and infirm. They're struggling even with health issues. They're weakened, Lord, and yet we are unbelieving and thinking that you're able to act. Lord, I pray that you would increase our our faith, that we would trust you, and that we would appeal to you to act according to your mercy. Lord, and you're able to glorify yourself in so many different ways. We ask, Lord, that you would heal and that you would soothe and that you would comfort. And even this morning, Lord, as we're all feeling a little weakened, I think, as we're all a little bit tired, Lord, we see that you have us in a good place because you have brought us low and we are oriented. We have to be oriented to lean upon you. So as we hear from your word, Lord, even as we celebrate your word and we open our hearts to your word, we pray that you would heal us, you would wound us and heal us, that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that we would glorify you knowing that only you can do this. So we ask that you would meet us this morning and glorify your own name amongst us. Come and do this, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen maybe seated Should I ask the question what time is it? <laughs> you feel a little a little out of it, you know, the time change. It maybe is cruel and unusual punishment to have on the d- day of the time change to have Full Sunday school main service and a potluck, uh, so it is the beginning of daylight savings time. If you didn't know, uh, I think you're here thinking it's Sunday school. Uh, you know, you're you're actually on time for the main service. Way to go! Uh, and and you you know, I mean, I, when we think about this, I I just I I remark. It just takes little things like this, just to, just maybe a change in your sleep and suddenly you come and you start feeling weak. And when we're weakened, then we're not relying on our own strength, are we? We must look to the Lord this morning. And I think actually, I just, I marvel at the Lord's timing in all of this. But there is kind of a bigger question of what time is it that we could ask regarding our society and our world. You know, People are starting to wonder, are we at another place where we're thinking that the world is going to end? Is it going to end by nuclear war? That's the way people talk. You know, It's a discussion that maybe we haven't had for decades, and it's back on the table. Many people are very concerned with the idea of a climate catastrophe. Do you think about the judgment of God? Do you think about God's judgment coming near is that something you think about? The wrath of God in judgment as Jesus returns. Do you think that Jesus could return tonight? And are you ready if Jesus returned tonight to judge the living and the dead? My own interest in history, I'm always kind of interested in history. Uh, it's always been not just uh, dates and dead people, but I think even just patterns You see over time and over history, you see patterns. And on the farm, I always remember just watching the seasonal patterns even of weather and seasonal commodity markets. You know, is the price of wheat up? Is it going to be down? All these things that ranchers and farmers depend on. And I've always thought about these patterns of time. Uh, Carl Truman a theologian, historian, he he's argued that we're in a time, a pattern of time of expressive individualism. And he would say that pattern stretches back even to the late 18th century. David Wells, another theologian, he described the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century as our time. Now, it wasn't a positive comment. It's the idea that, we only think about us now we don't think about the past we don't think about anybody for the future we just think about us now this is our time it's all about us another couple of sociologists researchers strauss and Howe, they say that we're in what's called the fourth turning and that's a theory about how generations are born and mature and die and are succeeded by other generations And so they would say that we're in a generation of institutional crisis. And I think there's a lot to be commended about that. But all of these descriptions are an answer to the question mankind asks. What time is it? And for the Christian believer, if you're a Christian believer here today, the question what time is it must be clarified by that helpful acronym AD. I think Josh alluded to it in his opening ad what does it mean some think it means after death and so if it's 2023 ad it's 2023 after after death after the the crucifixion of our lord but but it actually stands for something in latin it's anno domini which is the year of our lord the year of our lord and so when we say 2023 A.D., we are marking out our time by the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is the existence of Jesus Christ who continues to live. It is a critical thing. Is Jesus alive right now? Okay. Is Jesus alive right now? Okay. All right. Just checking. Everybody is almost awake. But if he's alive right now, then we mark time by his ongoing life. He remains alive. And so he is ascended. He is active. This morning, do you think of the activity of the risen Christ? That he is interested in you. He is interceding for you now. And that he is returning sooner by the day. That just the anticipation of Christ coming back. A.D. Anno Domini. Now Mark's Gospel shows us the tensions that exist between people living, as it were, in an old time and then Jesus then inaugurating a new time. A new covenant with a new creation. And so Jesus' life his death and his resurrection brought about this A.D., this Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, this time transformed. Now, although the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 deal with questions about fasting and the observance of the Jewish Shabbat, the, the Sabbath, we shouldn't miss the main point. And the main point is this, that the Son of Man transforms time he transforms time and so if you're wondering about what time it is or you're struggling with what time it is or you're wondering about what time it is in our society or what time it is in your life how your life is going on your timeline the son of man transforms time and so we we get into then into this and we see that there is this time to fast. Is it a time to fast? You see in verses 18 and following. Now, why would people fast? Now, in this crowd, I'm guessing, you know, why, why, you just ask the question, why would people intentionally refrain from eating for a set time? And I think I know enough people here, oh yeah, well, you want to fast for the health benefits, right? Because we're all kind of, pretty healthy crowd here, I think, so that's what, you'd be oriented that way. Oh, okay, well, uh, you know, my wife and I were talking, you know, I, I got the report, you know, I got high, high cholesterol, you know, at my age, right, so just to tell all my business, but uh, so so what do I do? Do I go on, you know, do I try to deal, get a pill to deal with it, or, you know, do I get something, you know, try to do it with diet, and then maybe intermittent fasting, I, it's, I don't. I'm not really keen on the intermittent fasting. Really, in the ancient world, everybody was worried about just feeding themselves. They were. They just want to keep everybody alive. They weren't really looking to be fasting in order to you know stay slim and trim. So so to fast, it wasn't for the health benefits. But it was actually about times and seasons. Fasting was was taken up during a season or a time of lament and of mourning. So fasting is connected to, to sad times. In the Psalms often, fasting was connected to persecution and oppression. So in Psalm 109, we can call it the song of the slandered, David says, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gant with no fat. That's Psalm 109, verse 24. See, fasting, what it does, it has this very it's this narrowing function. It, it takes all of your attention that's distracted and it narrows your focus. You're, you're not distracted by the things of the world. You're looking exclusively to God, away from all secondary causes, away from the familiar, and you focus on God alone. So God alone is your hope. God alone is your supply, he's your rescuer, he's your provider, that's what fasting does. And there's a sense in which you've come here this morning having fasted maybe from a little bit of sleep that you were expecting. And what it's doing is you're either going to kind of give up or you're actually going to be more focused on the Lord to help you with the energy to get through even our time together. So that's what was going on, and then Jesus, he would insist that your fasting shouldn't be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you, he says in Matthew 6. So Jews fasted. They fasted. The Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples, they, they fasted. Why would they be fasting? Well, they would fast because they saw that Rome still occupied Jerusalem. The Messianic Age had not been realized in any obvious way in their minds. Well, at least, you know, they knew maybe knew about Jesus, but it was only hinted at. So in the first century, the issue of fasting was really about whether or not you thought that the Messiah had arrived or whether you, you were still waiting for the Messiah. If you're waiting for the Messiah, then you're fasting because you feel oppressed. So the question then in Mark chapter 2 and verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? That's the question that's put to Jesus. It's a, it's a question of timing. John the, John the Baptist's disciples might have been involved with Jesus, but they continued to follow John the Baptist until John said in John 3.30 that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. But Jesus' point in response was that his disciples had him close by. They had his presence. And it ought to be a time of joy and confidence and openness. So he, he says there, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I mean, you know how it is. You I mean, just like, you know, you've got a groom, and he's got his, uh, his bros at, as, in his wedding party. You know, got his bros with him, his posse, his tribe, his clan, whatever. And, 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 and they're getting ready for the wedding. So, so they have the, the bachelor party, and they, and they go, and, they, and, then, and then before the wedding, they all get, you know, dressed up in the monkey suit, and, and they all get the gear on, and they're all laughing, and it's all having a good time. And and even even through the wedding, as they stand up for him, they're still there. And then there's a reception, and then you got the groom. You know, the the best man gets up and says a bunch of very embarrassing things about the groom. You know, and they're all it's all laughs. And then that's it. Then the groom goes off with the bride, and the bros are left to you know. Okay, what now? I guess okay. I see you later. You know. Guess we're not going to see that guy for a while. Right? He's, he's gone. He, he doesn't care about the bros anymore. And that's the point. You know, while you've got the groom with you, well, no, now's not the time to be sad and to be lamenting. Now's the time to enjoy ourselves, to rejoice. We have him. We have the groom with us. There will be a day. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now you don't want to get too lost in all the groomsman analogy, but you can just think about it a little bit like this. What Jesus is saying is Jesus is anticipating his departure to the cross. And he's anticipating his resurrection and his departure in his ascension to heaven. You remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24:21 the dejection that the guys felt when they said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel insert and he, he didn't he, he just it didn't work out we had hoped it didn't work out he's gone of course, then Jesus did appear to them, you know, the guys on the road to Emmaus. Or in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were confronted by the angels. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're standing there. It's like, He's gone. And he's like, why are you standing around? There's stuff to do. He's going to come back. See, fasting can be spiritually good. It can focus you to walk by faith, not by sight. The elders, we all fast at every elder's retreat in order to get us focused spiritually on God and helps us focus on our calling as under shepherds, under Jesus, who's, of course, our chief shepherd, so we do that. Fasting is good. We can, we can sing like, John Newton saying, "Begone unbelief. My Savior is near and for my relief will surely appear. You're fasting and you're looking for God's relief. But this is what he's doing. Jesus is showing that his arrival is the most important thing. His presence changed it all. And that's how then the bridegroom analogy is going to connect to two other analogies that he makes. What's the other two? The picture of the unshrunk cloth and the new wine. It's all about bringing a new presence in and does it fit with the old? Now, many of you here, I think, have struggled for years because you've been trying to make Jesus fit into your old ways that you want to keep. You want to pour Jesus into your old containers. You you think that you can put his cloth into your old garment. You think you can put his new wine into your old wineskin. But you can't. You can't. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't here to be put into your box. And yet... That's what a lot of people want, and that's how they think. They want Jesus to fit in with their box, their way of doing things. And the Jews were trying to do that. That's what Jesus' point is. They wanted a Messiah who would come, and that the Messiah would uphold the distinctive food laws, the kosher food laws. They wanted a Messiah who would come and uphold the priority of Jewishness in all things who would uphold the centrality of the physical temple, who would uphold the geographical focal point of Jerusalem. They wanted a a Messiah that would do all that. And he comes and he says, no, actually, no, that's like putting the unshrunk cloth in an old garment. That's like putting new wine in old wineskins. It wrecks the wine and it bursts the old skins. It doesn't work. Jesus came to break the mold and establish a new kingdom. That's what he's getting at here. His presence is going to be celebrated by his guys, by his bros. They're going to celebrate that. They're not going to fast while they're with him. But he's coming and he's upsetting everything. This new kingdom was testified to by the old, as Paul said, in Romans chapter 3, but it's a righteousness apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And yet, many of you, I would say, well, all of us are tempted to it, but it's, there's many people here who are doing the same thing, and it boils down to this, you want control. You want control. You want To control how Jesus makes claims on your life. You want to fit it in to something you can manage. You don't want to walk by faith. You want to walk by sight. If you don't see it, you don't want to do it. You don't want to have to trust in anything that is not within your small control. And that's why then you're uncomfortable with Jesus. When he brings new demands and when he has a new way of relating to God that, that you don't prefer. And you want Jesus, and, and this, this, is it. this is the case in this church. It's certainly the case in this society where people want Jesus, and it might be you, you want Jesus to affirm your ways, to affirm your preferences, to affirm your identities To affirm your time frame. What time is it? Have you got got so little time for Jesus? This this should sting us all. How much time do you have for Jesus? You've got so little time for him. Jesus did not come to fit your schedule. He didn't come to fit your schedule. He is Lord of all. And yet, that's how we treat him. We'll give him just that slender, slender bit of our time that isn't filled up with everything else. And we'll just pigeonhole him into that, so we think. How dare we? (laughs) Jesus won't put up with it. He's not going to stand for it. The Son of Man transforms time. And His coming breaks all of these previous schedules and molds and structures and frameworks. And that's the point. It's about fasting, but it's actually about the presence and arrival of Jesus that demands everybody give Him his, their full attention. So that's what's going on there. And I would just say, this is the test right now, isn't it? All of us, you're you're like, oh man, I hope this will end. I got to go home. I'm tired. Because you're feeling a little bit wore out. Me too. And yet, how little we want to give to Jesus. And yet, he demands our all and is entitled to our all. Be gone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. See, that's that's what we need. We need to see that, no, he's there for us, even as he demands our all, because Jesus, even the Son of Man, transforms all our time. He's putting it on his clock, not on ours. But that then segues then into this, this second section which is about the Sabbath, but really it's, it's about a time of rest. Because that's what we, we long for. The, the Son of Man transforms time and it's illustrated in verse 23 through 36. Jesus, of course, he's confronted by the Pharisees because his disciples were doing something that every kid at harvest time has done that I was taught to do and all kids do. You walk along, you pick the head of wheat, you crush it into your hand, you blow away the chaff, and then you pop the wheat into your mouth, and you chew it, and it becomes gum. (laughs) And so, like, you can't afford to get chiclets, you know, you just, you gotta, sorry, get your own, grab it there as you walk by. And that's what, these, that's what the disciples are doing. Now, the Pharisees, of course, well, they acted as if Jesus' guys were firing up the combines. You know. And it wouldn't be a big deal, except for the timing. Because this was happening on the Sabbath, on, on the Saturday, on the day of rest instituted from the creation in Genesis 2. Sabbath keeping was reaffirmed in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, in the fourth commandment. You know, keeping the Sabbath day holy. No one was supposed to work. They were supposed to cease from regular activity in the way that God ceased from regular creative activity on the seventh day. He was still sustaining the universe but he ceased from that creative activity, and it wasn't because he was tired, but because he was the Lord. And he's established that. I always just think of uh, my granny. My granny, she, she told about growing up in northeast coast of Scotland, and uh, her parents were, were Presbyterians, or Sabbatarians. Sabbatarians. Uh, so their view is the Sabbath being now Sunday in their view. And there was no football played on Sunday. No soccer played on Sunday. And so uh, my granny, she was little, and her siblings, they went to their dad and asked if they could play football. And he said, well, only if you play quietly and on the other side of the hill. Basically, so I don't have to see you. <laughs> Jesus knew the Sabbath command, Actually, I don't know if my story has a whole lot to do with the text, but it's just—it's just—it's just my sabbatarian anecdote that I think of my granny. Um, Jesus knew the Sabbath command, right? He—he he knows this. He knows his Bible. He knows Exodus twenty. He knows Genesis two. But what does Jesus do? Because you're—you're basically having the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus in a Bible corral. And Jesus responded to the Pharisees by referring to the episode of David in 1 Samuel 21, when David and his men ate the bread that was exclusively reserved for the priests in their priestly work of God's holy temple and its service. It was only for them. And David goes ahead in 1 Samuel 21, I don't have time to go there, but... He goes there and he eats from the showbread and he gives it to his guys. And so Jesus then inciting this, he's, he's proclaiming this, he's, he's bringing this Bible text forward like a prophet so that showing that he could act like a priest and act like, like King David. He had the freedom to do all of this. It's an amazing thing. Now, just a, just a quick point. It says how he entered, he, Jesus says, verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. If you know, maybe you're troubled by this, you know it's Ahimelech is the high priest, but Abiathar was his son and was the only survivor. And so that's just a reference to, the, to looking back to the historical period. But it wasn't lawful for any but the priest to eat, Jesus says at the end of verse 26. But he gave it to those who were with him. And, and so Jesus is making this argument that there is this time and place. If it's the right person, he can actually then, as it were, fulfill or supersede these requirements. And so Jesus then says, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he's trying to show the intention. The Pharisees used the Sabbath as a club to beat people with. Jesus is highlighting the fact that the Sabbath was intended for the good of people, to do them good. It's intended for rest. And so if these guys are hungry and in need, then there's this need to supply them and help them. Now, the question, of course, is where, if you're a Christian believer, is the question of why aren't we meeting on Saturday? Why aren't we down the street? If you come in into Bridgeland, you see the Seventh-day Adventist church. How come we're not meeting on Saturday like they do? Because they think that that is the Sabbath that's still in effect, that we should hold to the Jewish Sabbath. Well, of course, we know that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That is, not on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, but on Sunday. And so, ever since, then, Christians gathered on the first day of the week. Now, this Sabbath controversy, though, at this time when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, is still dealing with the Jewish Sabbath. And so they're wrestling with these issues. And it's more of an issue of compromise. If you weren't keeping the Sabbath, you were compromising with a worldly culture. And so that's what they're challenging Jesus about. They're getting at him because they think he's a compromiser. But he's showing, no, it's not about being compromising with a worldly culture. It's actually about Jesus bringing something new. He's actually bringing true rest. He's bringing something significant. He's bringing even his own presence. And so he says in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Remarkable. My favorite passages is Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28 where Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So Jesus, by saying that, because rest is, is the Sabbath. It is, it is tied together. Jesus is saying that He is the one that brings rest. He is the one in Himself So that it's not required, in my view, to be a Sabbath keeper in the same way because Christ is my Sabbath. He is my rest. I rest in Him. He is the fulfillment. It's interesting, however, that John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, spoke of being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that's why, like if you... If, if i talk to you as you go out the door at the end of the service i will say i will say to you you know as you leave i'll say have a good lord's day you know because today is the lord's day it's the first day of the week it's the lord's day we gather for worship on the lord's day but i don't view it as the same as the jewish sabbath with all of its rules and regulations We do want to have a principle from Genesis 2 of a seven-day cycle of rest. But that's that's a little bit different than saying that we must enforce, then, strictly all the Jewish Sabbath codes. Nevertheless, we see the Lord's Day. This is our time we gather together. And this is our spiritual rest. You think, oh, there's so much work to get to church. There's so much work. Yeah, but it's not that you're to do nothing. That's not what Sunday's for, to do nothing. It's actually to be spiritually renewed by resting in Christ together with everyone else, coming into His presence. And why is it? Why is it that Jesus would be the fulfillment of Sabbath rest? We have the old creation, the creation mandate of of the seven-day rest. Why, Why shouldn't we just stick with Saturday? The reason is, I would argue, is that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, and literally there is, a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because Christ has brought a new creation, he's bringing basically a new calendar. And the calendar is... You don't have to worry about keeping all of these rules and regulations and times and seasons because there is rest in Him. There's no need then to look for a season of Jubilee. There is Jubilee in Him. There is no need to look for all of the festivals and all of all the things that you had in the Old Testament because they are fulfilled in Him. And that's why if you have a Christ-centered perspective... It then is clarifying. I also think uh, with the kingdom of Christ, his kingdom isn't, isn't any longer reduced to geographic Israel or geographic Jerusalem because Christ is with us now, with us by his spirit, with us even according to his divine nature In his omnipresence, he is with us, and we belong to his new temple that Peter says in 1 Peter 2 is a temple of living stones. We're living stones in a a new temple. We are citizens of the Jerusalem that is above, as Paul said in Galatians 4. We belong to this new Jerusalem. And because of that, Christ himself is our Sabbath rest and that's why i think then we we can sing in christ alone what heights of love what what depths of peace when fears are stilled when what strivings cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of christ i stand i'm standing in his rest he is my sabbath And so we honor the Lord's day. We see it. We esteem it. But the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is the one that has transformed the Sabbath and made it into then this this thing where it pointed to him and he's giving us this soul rest for eternity. Now, I think it's wise to honor the seven-day pattern it's wise, but there's people who work shift work. There's there's people. Well, I'm working right now, uh, just just to say. Uh, you know, there's lots of people working staff. You know, you when you're volunteering, you're working. Uh, and and so, but there's liberty in that. But our liberty rests in Christ's new creation. In His timeline, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think we honor the Lord on the Lord's Day in the gathering of his people and setting aside our time to give ourselves to the Lord and to rest in that. And it's because he's done us good. It's a time of him doing us good. But that brings us then to the third episode, which is also a Sabbath question. And it's it's a Sabbath healing there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, think of, the, think of the scene here. You've got a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And I don't know about you, but just maybe reading between the lines, when I see that, you can't help but think, how long has that guy been going to the synagogue with the withered hand? How long has he been there in need of healing, in need of help, in need of support? I think many, I think even just thinking about people who go to churches around the world. And they go to church and no one really cares for them. I was talking to a guy yesterday talking about Roman Catholic Church uh, in, I guess it'd be in Eastern Europe. And talking about his background and just basically talking about how no one would care for the infirm, no one would care for people who are in weakness, no one would pick care, exploited, taken advantage of. And notice how these Pharisees, you know, Jesus goes in the synagogue, there's a man with a withered hand, and verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal, heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's what they're, that's what they're worried about. They're not concerned with this guy with the withered hand. They don't care about him. They're seeing this Jesus is a threat to our power, a threat to our establishment. Let's see, let's see if he's going to do something that we don't like. And that's how many of us can be. So fussing about things that don't matter and missing the obvious cares and needs that are right around us. These guys wanted to entrap Jesus. That's what they were looking for, to set him up. And it's remarkable because Jesus, you know, he knows this. But he said to the guy with the withered hand, he says, come here. Like Jesus just goes straight at it. Jesus never avoids these confrontations. He goes straight at them. Okay, dude, come here. Come here. And then he says to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Obviously, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But see, that doesn't fit then with this entrapment plan. It doesn't fit. They want to get him into a corner, so they just—they don't say anything. They were silent, it says. And notice the response in verse 5. Jesus' response, and this should challenge you in how you view Jesus. He looked around at them. How? What was his emotion that we get in Mark's gospel? He looked around at them with anger. Jesus was angry. Gavin spoke a few weeks ago at the men's breakfast on anger. And it's remarkable to see the right kind of anger that Jesus has. He looked around at them with anger. He's in the synagogue and he's angry. Why is he angry? He is grieved at their hardness of heart. He's grieved at how hard these people have become towards the needy right in their synagogue. Right in their community how hard they were that they were going to try to entrap Jesus, that that was their high priority, rather than looking to the Lord and honoring God. So hard in heart, and Jesus was angry. You can see then where the wrath of the Lamb comes from. Jesus was angry, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand." Of course, the guy, you know, when Jesus commands people, what do they do? They obey. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus, did, Jesus didn't even have to touch him. Stretch out your hand, and his hand was restored. And you would think, if the Pharisees, and those who were in that synagogue, if they were oriented to let Ah, oh, the new wine come into new wineskins, or they were wanting to have then the unshrunk cloth be a part of an entirely unshrunk new garment. If they were willing to accept Jesus as the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, they'd be able to be rejoicing that look, the presence of God has come. Here is the Messiah, the messianic age has dawned, and look. He has healed this man that we couldn't heal and then we couldn't do anything about it. And they could have rejoiced and they could have been so happy. The bridegroom is here with us, right here. He's here. Look what he's doing. It's a time for celebration. It's a time for a party. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held council with the Herodians, their enemies, against him how to destroy him never never underestimate the lengths that people will go to preserve their old paradigms to preserve their old forms to preserve their control and they will go to great lengths to preserve their control they will lie and cheat and destroy to keep their control whether it's politically Or in a marriage, or in any kind of relationship, they will keep control. And certainly spiritually, people will refuse to come to Christ who would do them good. They'll refuse it because they don't want to have anybody change the way they do things. They wanted to destroy him. A number of years ago, a, a saintly woman in this church passed away. And she had such an amazing testimony. Her name was Yuna, and she had spent most of her, her adult life in uh, a religious group called the Worldwide Church of God. And it's a cult. Uh, why do I say it's a cult? Because although they would talk about Jesus... They demanded that everybody follow the Jewish kosher food laws and that you had to keep the Sabbath. Not Sunday, but the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. And she spent years and years trying to do enough to stay righteous enough to try to control her life and try to match the control in her life with the control that others were saying that she needed to have. And so she's controlling and others are controlling her and they're comparing each other's level of control and how controlled they are and they're controlling and trying to do all these things. And she lived in that slavery for years and years and years and years. And then... She started to read the Bible anew and afresh. As an older woman, after all this long history and all these patterns, she started to read the Bible anew and afresh. And God, in his mercy, opened her eyes to believe the true gospel. And you know what she found out? That the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And she found liberty and liberation by trusting not in her ability to control and be obedient enough to all of these kosher food laws and all of the Sabbath keeping and all that was required, but that she could realize that Jesus kept the law in her place, that there was rest for her in Him. And she was marvelously saved and had such a sweetness. As an older woman, and when you would talk to her, she was one that was always cognizant that Jesus didn't come to fit into her schedule, but Jesus came to transform her life, her time, and she had true liberation from his grace. She lived out what the writer to the Hebrews told those folks, many of whom had come back, come out of this kind of very legalistic Judaism. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Listen to this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. That's why I'm not strictly speaking a Sabbatarian. I believe in the Lord's Day on Sunday. But Christ is my Sabbath. And according to Hebrews 4.10, I find rest in Him. And that gives you liberation. And in your weariness today, in your weariness of life, Give up your control. Give it up. Relinquish yourself and find rest in him alone. Stop striving. Let them cease. Trust in him, for he transforms time and start living in truth. Anno Domini, in the year of our living Lord. Look to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father in all of our burdens I pray that we would come and relinquish them and trust you and your sovereign control your sovereign care your sovereign wisdom and that we would be privileged to enjoy the liberty of the new creation on an entirely new calendar O oh Lord Make us yours and set us by your clock, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.